notes one to seven. And I want you to see, this is going to be a very short spell. I want you to see if you can name the seven stages of Jesus' career on earth, okay? The seven main stages of Jesus' career on earth. If you have no idea what I'm talking about, just try and name some cool stuff Jesus did. All right. Theologians typically mark seven stages of significant transitions in Jesus' earthly career. They are, number one, the incarnation. Incarnation, that's a fancy way of saying his birth, right? Jesus was born, right? How many of you get that one? Oh, look at all those hands. Awesome. The second is Jesus' inauguration. His inauguration. This is his baptism. This is what we celebrate today. It's where Jesus officially steps into ministry as a 30-something-year-old. You know, what was he doing all those years before that? We don't know. Maybe doing tricks with parlor tricks with his friends or something. But it was at that stage where Jesus officially comes in and begins to teach. And, and that's his inauguration. Uh, the third is his death or crucifixion. Come on now. Number four, his resurrection, of course. Huzzah, his resurrection. Number five, his ascension. Number six, his intercession or direction, his guidance. And number seven, his return, his imminent return. You did not. Did anyone get them all? Seriously, I'd be so impressed. I'm not sure I would have gotten them all having not freshened up on this myself. So throughout the church year, we celebrate all of these things, some better than others, like incarnation, we, Christmas. I mean, it's massive. It's even in the secular world. We, we do Christmas every year. Uh, the inauguration, we don't do a whole lot. But like I said, uh, today is the baptism of Jesus Sunday. And in the early centuries of the church, that was a big deal. People did lots of things. Uh, his death, of course, we do Good Friday 10 brace service every year right here. Um, and of course, the resurrection is the high day of the Christian calendar. It is Easter Sunday, right? Uh, the ascension, we'll come back to that. It's a bit of a hua-hua, like we don't do a whole lot. It sometimes falls in the middle of the week, so we have to pick which Sunday closest to the ascension. We celebrate it. His intercession and direction, well, we don't always celebrate that, but that might be the one that we practice the most often because every time we pray, we are praying to the one who's interceding on our behalf, who's listening to our prayers and answering prayers. And of course, his imminent return is something that we don't necessarily have a holiday for, although we might when he does return. Well, I'm sure we'll want to mark that day. Uh, but it, it's something that we hope for. And his return is the reason why we get out of bed in the morning, right? If he wasn't going to return and make all things new, it's not worth it, folks. Get your money back. Go on. Uh, but it's the ascension that I want to talk about today because it is one of those things that we just don't do a good job of in this church or in many uh, Protestant churches that I've seen, we don't do a good job of highlighting it and celebrating it. There's no cool thing associated with it, like gift giving or candy. So it's, I mean, kids, you don't know if it comes or goes. You probably wouldn't care. All I do is change a tablecloth color and ask you about it once a year, okay? Um, it's probably the least understood, least celebrated, um, and yet it's just as important um, than anything else. And it's the ascension. And so we're going to talk about it today because that's what our text is dealing with. 
Uh, Would you please stand, if you're able, while we read Acts chapter 1, verses 9 through 14. And after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in dazzling clothing stood beside him. They also said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you've watched him go into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. And when they had entered the city, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. That is, Peter and John and James, Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. These all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. Lord, help us. Help us not just to understand even what you're saying, but to hear what you're saying to us now, to gain good news from this passage and let it change our lives. Amen. You may be seated. I find that children ask some of the best questions, and Christian children often asks, ask hard questions, and one of the questions that Christian parents often get at least once from their kids is, where's Jesus? I can't see him. To which we often reply, oh, sweetie, or whatever your saccharine word is, um, he's in your heart. Jesus is in your heart which is extremely confusing when you consider that most children under eight years old don't have the ability to comprehend abstract concepts. So kids are thinking, how can a man fit in my chest? Did he shrink down? And I thought mom said he was in my sister's heart too. So do I have like an ear and she has a foot or does he multiply? Is he little people in everybody's hearts? Is there more than one Jesus now? Now, as we get older, of course, we are sophisticated and we realize that Jesus in your heart is a metaphor. But there's still the question like, where the heck is Jesus then? Or rather, as the text will imply, where the heaven is Jesus? We began our journey through the book of Acts last Sunday. And there the author Luke tells us that Jesus was crucified and then resurrected. He appeared to his disciples on and off for a 40-day period. And this wasn't just 40 days of visions or dreams of Jesus or people seeing a ghost that was flitted here or passed through a wall there. It was 40 days of people eating with the physically resurrected Jesus, 40 days of people listening to the physically resurrected Jesus teach. And Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15 that at one time over 500 witnesses uh, saw and interacted with the physically resurrected Jesus. Jesus. So if Jesus rose from the dead, and if Jesus was clothed in a new body, an eternal resurrection body, remember that's what we're hoping in, right? So it's got to be incorruptible. It's got to be the kind of body that doesn't break down anymore, that hearts work correctly, um, our, our, our affections are directly ordered towards God. If that is the kind of body he had, then where is he? Because it's really hard to get rid of an eternal body, isn't it? 
And if he's not here, where did he go? And if he's gone, how is that good news for you and me? Well, there are three ways that we're going to get at these questions together. We're going to look at them historically. We're going to look at them theologically. And of course, we're going to bring it home and look at it practically. So let's begin with the setting in history. Luke is writing an account of Jesus and his early church. He's writing in the genre of a blend of ancient historiography and theological history. He goes to great lengths to to mark these events in real time and real space. So Jesus is born, for example, under the reign of Augustus and the local governance of Herod. He was crucified under the governorship of Pontius Pilate and the priesthood, combined priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. He was crucified on Golgotha outside of Jerusalem, and he rose and he ascended from the Mount of Olives in the vicinity of Bethany. At the time that this document was written, it had already been the accepted tradition in the early church. Most of these early witnesses of Jesus' death and resurrection were still alive, telling these stories, talking about them in worship. And as far as we know, of all the extant materials in our historical database, there are no official denials or rebuttals of Jesus' resurrection. Synagogue officials, Roman officials could have easily written, we we don't agree, they just didn't say anything to it, okay? So this is really interesting. And as we read near the end of Jesus' resurrection appearances, he told his disciples to remain in Jerusalem until they received power from on high, the Holy Spirit. Because once they received the Spirit, Jesus would make them witnesses. And he would send them out into the world. And he would want them to witness to the world the love of Jesus, the saving grace of Jesus, the rule and the reign of Jesus, and the eternal liberating life of Jesus. This is what they're going to witness to. Well, then he takes them out of town in the direction of Bethany, as it says in Luke 24, a Sabbath's journey away, which puts them on this place called the Mount of Olives, which shows up quite a bit in the gospel stories, doesn't it? From there, something weird happens. Jesus is lifted up off the ground into a cloud, and then he is received out of their sight. Jesus is gone into the air. Like, what is even going on here? The disciples, of course, are staring into the sky, as you would do if your friend and mentor just lifted into the air and disappeared in a cloud. And then these two dudes in dazzling clothing, it says, comes and, what are you guys doing looking at the sky? It's got to be a rhetorical question, right? Because... So these guys are angels. Remember the empty tomb in the Gospel of Luke? Two men in dazzling clothing. Angels. Angels who bring bring some revelation from God about a situation that nobody is understanding in their own flesh. These angels bring good news. And they say that Jesus is going to come back much in the same way that he left. In the meantime, it's time for you to get your heads out of the clouds, as they say, or out of the sky and get down onto the ground, into the work that Jesus has called us to. Let's just back up a minute, though. I still don't get this. Like, what is going on? Jesus gets eaten by a cloud, and people are just okay with this and say, get to work, he's gone? 
What kind of a historical account of Jesus is this anyway? No wonder parents tell their kids he's in your heart. That is actually more believable than he got eaten by a cloud into the sky and is gone. Well, scientifically, where did he go? Where is Jesus? The ancients didn't ask the same types of questions we ask. That's the first thing that we have to understand. People in the ancient world didn't ask modernist type of questions. We want to know how, scientifically. How did Jesus do that? Where is he in real time and space? I need a location. I need an address. I need to call him. I want to write him a letter. The first assumption of the ancients, however, is that there are very real spiritual powers. We would do well to regain some of that. Remember, these are the same people who were just eating with a resurrected dead man, right? They had seen Jesus multiply food. They'd seen this man walk on water. They saw him heal diseases and not just like pray over people and they got better from their common cold, but heal years worth of flow of blood in that woman, raised Lazarus from the dead, He took someone with a a deformed limb and touched them and it just straightened out again. These aren't things that's like, well, maybe it was Jesus or maybe they just got well on their own. Like, they, they saw Jesus do these things. And so when it comes to how Jesus disappeared or went wherever he went for an ancient thinker, not really a stretch. They'd seen much more miraculous things, actually. The where is also an interesting question. See, for the ancients, the cosmos were divided into three realms. There was the world, which is the the realm of human beings and plants and animals. And, no, I'm talking about non-Jewish thinkers here. Um, The world is the realm that we inhabit, where gods intervened in sporadic, sometimes consistent ways, but usually they just kind of popped in and out wherever they wanted to. But this is the place, the terra firma of human beings and plants and animals and volcanoes and windstorms and all kinds of stuff. And sometimes the gods show up, but sometimes they don't. Even in Jewish tradition, though, we read about a God who mediates his presence through special appearances like burning bushes and pillars of smoke and fire, through prophets and angels, and through special visits, fancy theologians called theophanies. But the hope was that one day God would come and actually dwell with his people. So that, that's the world, that's, that's one of the spheres of the ancient cosmology, that there's a world, and it's mainly the place where people live, but the gods, or even Yahweh in Jewish thinking, sometimes would show up, but sometimes was, was usually distant, right? When he showed up, it was special. Then there was the underworld, where people believed the majority of the dead were, would go, like most people would go to the underworld, and very few were lucky enough to go into the third sphere, which is heaven. And this is the realm of the sky. The ancients did not think that God lived in in like a cloud city, like Lando Calrissian or something like that. Like he's, they did not think that, that there was a place in our sky where gods and goddesses lived. But they did believe that past the sky that we can see was the realm where gods lived, that it was heaven, that the sky was kind of like this door that you could go through to get to the place where God is. Now, we know today that there are just multiple layers to our atmosphere, and after that, there's space, 
and a solar system and a galaxy and interstellar, interstellar space in between billions of galaxies. It just blows my mind when you think about all that's out there. When we read that Jesus rose and was covered by a cloud, we are not to think the ancient disciples thought that Jesus had just become the first spaceman. They had no concept of space like we do. They had no concept that he's somehow floating in space, maybe traveling to a different planet, maybe even light years away. They had no belief that Jesus would be on some other solar system or galaxy. He's not, he was no longer in our time and space. So to be very clear, Jesus is currently embodied. He is not just a spirit somewhere. He's existing in his resurrection body, and yet Jesus is not here. He's in heaven. He's in God's realm, and this realm isn't somewhere up there. It's more akin to being in another dimension. So Friday night, I've got a date with my daughter Stella. We try and do a birthday date, and it's a little late, but we finally did it, didn't we, hon? And we got to see Into the Spider-Verse, which is just a fantastic movie if you haven't seen it yet. A little intense for youngers, but great movie. Uh, in the film, I'm not going to give too much away here if you've seen the, the previews, uh, we encounter a, a quantum anomaly in the film a, in which characters from different universes end up in modern-day New York City. Each of these characters exists in the same time as the other characters, but until the anomaly, they were completely unaware of each other. They were in different, unique, parallel universes. A universe that looks very much like ours, but completely different. Now, there are philosophical and scientific inconsistencies, but hey, this is a Spider-Man cartoon. My point is that heaven is much more like a parallel universe where God lives. So Jesus is not so much in another part of our universe where he's literally in the sky or on some other planet or in some other solar system. Rather, he's in heaven, which is likely another dimension, which means rather than being light years away, he's actually very close to us. Dimensions don't have to be far in distance. Now, we may not be able to enter the heavenly realm without help, but he can come quite easily to us. And he often does. That's why in the Celtic tradition, for example, uh, there are what are known as thin places. We talk about this all the time in church here. Thin places are those areas where God's realm and our realm come close together. And these are common things that we do in prayer. We call that a thin place. In the sacraments, in service to other people, especially to people who cannot help themselves oftentimes. Thin places, worship, contemplation of the scriptures, and many, many more. So historically, Luke tells a story of where Jesus went. He's very much alive and well. He's very much embodied in his resurrection body. He's in God's realm or dimension, which is what we often call heaven. But Jesus' transition from earth to heaven isn't just a mechanical journey from one place to another or from one dimension to another or whatever it is. His leaving is packed full of theological significance as well. 
And the most obvious connection in this story is the cloud. Throughout scripture, God is described as coming to people via a cloud. A cloud of pillar and, and fire, for example, um, were associated with God's presence. And consider also that to Jewish writers and many early Christians, heaven was a word used as a reference to God. It was like it's a circumlocation, which means it's a, it's a respectful way of talking about God without actually saying God. So my grandparents would never say, thank God. They would say, thank heaven, right? And it means the same thing. Uh, here's an example from scripture, though, um, so you don't have to just base my evidence on my grandparents' colloquialisms. Uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasure in heaven. Treasure in heaven. Now, Jesus in this passage is using heaven as a circumlocation for God. Store up for yourselves treasure in God. He's not thinking, store up for yourselves treasure in heaven because it's like a Swiss bank account or like Gingrats where no one can get into it. He's talking about putting your heart, your everything, and placing your best treasure in God. That's what he's talking about. So theologically speaking, when Jesus ascends into a cloud and goes into heaven, it's another way of saying Jesus is going to be with God. By far, the biggest uh, theological significance of Jesus' ascension into a cloud is the fulfillment of prophecy, and particularly the prophecy that Emily Fraser just read from Daniel chapter 7. In that passage, which is more of a vision, really, Israel had been oppressed over time uh, by different beasts, four beasts, four nations, and it would appear that the people of God were completely defeated and crushed. But then there's a scene in where this one like a son of man comes on what? What's his vehicle? On a cloud. He comes on a cloud up to the ancient of days, which is another way of saying God, right? God the Father. So where is in Acts, chapter 1, our passage tonight, the perspective is where? It's on the ground. And we're looking up to the sky and we see Jesus ascending onto the cloud. That's the Acts 1 perspective. The Daniel 7 perspective is from heaven. Remember, Daniel's having a vision from the throne room of the Ancient of Days. And so, one like a cloud was coming to the Ancient of Days. That's the Son of Man coming up to heaven. Now, what's this all about? Two things. In Daniel, the prophecy talks about this mysterious Son of Man. It does not give him a name, but it does give him a vocation. His role is to, in his person, represent all of the people of God before the Ancient of Days. Remember, Daniel is writing from captivity in Babylon. It looked like God's people were finished. They had certainly been humiliated and crushed, no doubt about it. But then the Son of Man, this embodiment of all Israel, would come to heaven on a cloud, and what does he do when he gets there? He's vindicated by the high king, by the Ancient of Days. He's shown that, that he is not crushed. In fact, he's highly exalted over all the nations, including Babylon. The king of the universe would choose him above all powers and above all kings. And this Ancient of Days would give this Son of Man character 
the keys to all the kingdom of the universe that will never expire. His reign will be everlasting. That's the first thing. The second is this. Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the kingdom of God. And how did he refer to himself? As the son of man. Then he's crushed by the fourth beast of Daniel's prophecy, the Roman Empire. Hung him on a cross, didn't they? Whipped him and spit on him. Thought this guy's a loser. This guy is a farce. He's a fake. Just like all the other fake messiahs, we're going to hang him up on a cross because we're Rome. And then he surprises everybody. And he bursts out of that tomb three days later. He's resurrected. And then he ascends on a cloud, representing the presence of God and making us think of Daniel 7. What does this ascension then mean? It means that Jesus has been revealed as the fulfillment of Daniel 7. It means that he is the mysterious son of man of the prophecy. The ascension shows that Jesus going to the Father, the Ancient of Days, has reference this Daniel passage. Jesus goes to receive a kingdom and to sit at the place of honor in the heavenly realms. In fact, it shows that the risen Jesus is none other than the Lord God himself. Notice that after this event, Jesus' disciples go from merely obeying him to worshiping him. This is the, this is the shift this is the shift. He's enthroned now. Before they knew he was special, but now only Lord God does that. And these Jewish men and Jewish women, monotheists who would never worship anyone else but the living Yahweh himself, suddenly begin to worship Jesus. So far, we've explored the historical event of the ascension alongside the theological significance. But the third thing for us to consider is what, if anything, does the ascension have to do with us today and the way that we actually live? Well, it turns out quite a bit. It's one thing for Jesus to have been an amazing teacher. And it's still more that he died for our sin and rose from the grave, defeating death itself. But let's assume for a moment that that was it. I know that that's still a lot. But let's say that was it. All that really proves is that Jesus is amazing. He's just amazing. Jesus is a hero who sacrificed himself and defeated our greatest enemy, death. But if Jesus had just stayed here forever in his singularity, even in his resurrected body, he could only be in one place at one time, even in that cool resurrected body, and you know he could teleport, he was doing that sometimes, and like walking through walls. He still could only be wherever he was. You can only teleport so fast. You're still just one guy. But now that he's risen, and now that he's received a kingdom, and now that he's assumed reign over all things, we now have confidence that everything he says and has said will come to pass. Before the ascension, Jesus was powerful and had command of things right in front of him. Some pretty great powers, for example. I mean, he cast out demons and heal and raise the dead. I mean, amazing powers. But now that he's ascended, the world is on notice. 
that there is a new king reigning over all kings, reigning over all things for all time. That's a difference maker. How is that practical, you may be wondering? Well, let's take a look at the disciples. Verse 12 says that after the ascension, the 11 disciples, remember Judas Iscariot had died. Anyway, these 11 disciples left the Mount of Olives where Jesus had ascended. They returned to Jerusalem. It's just a small detail, but think about it. Where were these 11 guys from? From Galilee. It's not in Jerusalem. It's not even the Jerusalem's in Judea. Galilee is a trek away. These guys, we know, we know some of them, for a fact, from the scriptures, had families. We assume that some of them at this age were probably, most of them had families. They must have done something for work. They must have had family farms or fishing businesses like Peter. Um, they had things to do. Why would they go to Jerusalem? Even if Jesus said so, what practical good would going to Jerusalem do? Well, here's what. Uh, Jesus commanded them to go, and his ascension proved that he had the authority to make such a command, and that he had the authority to make sure he could follow through on his part of it. The command was, go to Jerusalem and wait. That's hard to do when your leader just died, and now you're wondering, maybe that career choice to quit the fishing business was a bad one, because he just got eaten by a cloud, and now maybe I should humble myself and go back to dad, who I just ditched Zebedee. Oh, Zebedee, be nice to me because I got to come back with my tail between my legs and get back into the business. I've got a family to support. But the ascension tells us, or told them, that Jesus actually had the authority to back up his claim that the Spirit would come, and so they, they go back to Jerusalem. And when they got to Jerusalem, they connected with other disciples, including a group of women, and particularly Mary, Jesus' mother, and Jesus' brothers. Now, I don't know about you, I do know about most of you, uh, but when I'm under stress or when I have a huge task ahead of me, I am always, every time, tempted at least, and oftentimes fail, fall into this temptation, to just work harder, longer, and sleep less until I get headway in my own strength. Now notice what this band of Jesus followers does. With one mind, they were continually devoting themselves to prayer. Now, this wouldn't last forever, and it shouldn't last forever. Jesus called them to the important work of being witnesses in the world. Uh, they would do this in all kinds of different ways. Some of these men would go into full-time ministry, right? And others would be faithful witnesses in their craft or in their trade or in their vocation in society. But for the time following Jesus' ascension, these early disciples found confidence. And they found confidence in one thing, and that was Jesus being on the throne. And that meant that they did not have to go out and force things. They didn't have to wage culture wars for fear uh, that the, for the sake of the church. Um, they, they didn't have to fear making themselves effective in ministry. And so they, they devoted themselves to prayer. And here's where I think this gets really practical. You probably won't like this because it bothers me too. In a production-oriented culture, one in which I am quite at home, prayer seems so counterproductive. But think about this. If Jesus ascended 
and has all authority in heaven and on earth, then there really isn't, when you boil it down, a much more practical thing you can do if you want to see the gospel actually spread and the world actually change. Worship and prayer are very practical activities. There are lots of things we can do in our own strength, lots of things we should do in our own strength. We should be active citizens, right? We should be loving neighbors and faithful in our relationships. We should use our skills and our education and our expertise, our social credit, and any earthly means at our disposal for the good of other people. We should do that. But if we want to see hearts actually change, I can't do that. You can't do that. If we want to see the world actually transformed at its foundations, at its systemic evils, your Facebook posts, sorry to tell you, they're not going to do that. I know it's both and. But we are going to need power and authority that we just don't possess. But I know, and you know, someone who does. His name is Jesus. And he ascended into heaven where he has all authority. And he has promised to be with his church no matter what it is going through. No matter what you are going through. And that makes all the difference in the world. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you for this part of your ministry where you've not just shown us amazing things, what you can do, and not just called us, but you uh, have ascended to the throne. All the times and epics of the world and my life, my brothers and sisters' lives, are all in your hands as we sang earlier in the song Sovereign. And I pray that that confidence that is theoretically available because you are where you are would become very practical in my heart and our hearts. Help us to trust you that you have the authority to wipe our sins clean, to deal with our shame, and to deal with those areas in our life, whether it's addiction or ruts of sin or attitudes, or past hurts. Thank you that you can, you can change those things because you have all authority. And I thank you that from your position of authority, you can change the hearts in people's lives that we can't change. That you can reconcile relationships that we can't reconcile through our most crafty tactics and peace-loving ways. And I thank you, because of your position of authority, as the risen and reigning Jesus, you will sum up all things, all history and all storylines, into a good, gracious, and glorious end. Breathe your confidence into us, Lord, and cast out any fear that holds us back. Amen.